Hello and welcome to USA Today's For The Win podcast where we discuss the human side of sports. My name is Luke Kerdenine. I'm delighted to be joined today by former MLS Rookie of the Year, US Men's National Team midfielder turned candidate for the USSF presidency. Kyle Martino, how are you, Kyle? It's good to see you. Last time I saw you, we were in the studio at NBC and we were talking about Spurs and Chelsea. It's going to be a much different conversation today. I know, I was putting on a brave face, you know, after watching Chelsea fall to to Tottenham. It's brutal, it's brutal. We're happy times. Well, I don't have my brave face on for what's happening with U.S. soccer. It's clear we're all really worried about this thing. Absolutely. But, you know, I must say that now you're running for USSF president and you've you've shaved. So you have sold out already. I've I've kind of shaved. I've got the the, uh, out-of-work actor look. You have a stubble. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. So... Um, for those who might not be familiar, well, you know, Carl, I'll let you put this in your own words. But um, yeah, so you, 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 yeah, what, what, what? I, I'm going to butcher it if I. Um, so you're stepping away, or you're on a hiatus from NBC, mm-hmm. your sort of your day job, which you've described, I've seen as your dream job. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about soccer because there's a greater, there's a bigger cause here that you want to address. Yeah, and uh, you know, you've you've seen my day job. You've been into that studio and seen how much we enjoy doing that, mm-hmm. and uh, the people I get to work with. That's that's been one of the hardest things. There were two major decisions and two important conversations to to think about what I was getting ready to do. One was my family at home, and I spoke to my wife until 4 a.m. one morning about why I need to do this. And she needed to see in my eyes that this is something that if I don't do it now, when I'm 70 years old and we're sitting around talking about life and where we've come from, I wouldn't be able to forgive myself for not stepping in to do something for U.S. soccer right now. And after I convinced her and had her support, my next family was the NBC one. And I went in and spoke with Robbie, Rebecca, Rebecca, and Pierre, and Sam, and Lee, and Graham, and Arlo. Everyone, I've got a lot of wives, you know, in my (laughs) my NBC family. And I had to make sure that I had their support too because what we're doing at NBC, of course I call it my dream job and I love it, but I'm a part of a team and I didn't want to let my team down. And when they all said, we support you 100%, we see in your eyes this is something you need to do and gave me that blessing, I knew I, I had to go for this. And, and that kind of led me not to the binary yes or no, it led me to the, am I ready to step away from my dream job? And, and can I help US soccer? Yeah. I mean, this is a massive job and we are at an inflection point based on not, not failing to qualify for the World Cup on the men's side. I mean, that's what it feels like. It feels like that's triggered this, this momentum and this desire for change. But in reality, I, I sat and reflected on what I'm doing to help the game. And from my platform, I've done what I can. And I just realized it's not enough anymore. And, and I can affect things in a positive way. And I can be the impetus for positive change that U.S. soccer needs right now. And when I believed that, and I had the support of both my families, it was clear I had to do this. And and, and I've obviously seen you in action, you guys. You know, to say you're a team, it's all, you know, more like a family. You're so close-knit, right? Um, so. It's, it's inspiring to hear that the amount of support that you received, but you were initially hesitant to take mm-hmm. the plunge, right? Was, is this something that played into it? So I was hesitant initially um, just because I wasn't ready to leave my dream job, and, and I was hopeful that someone else would step forward. And I uh, even went to Twitter, and the first person I suggested was Julie Foudy, someone I respect uh, so much, someone on the soccer field I loved watching, but afterwards her career has been... 
um, really impressive and inspiring in the way she's growing the game. And she has a wonderful mind for how to help U.S. soccer. And I was hoping someone like her would step forward. And when I was looking at the field, I just felt I, I didn't see the type of person stepping forward that would have made me okay and sleeping at night. I, it wouldn't have assuaged, uh, the field yet doesn't assuage my concerns about making the mistake of, of putting someone in place of, in U.S. soccer right now that doesn't have the ability to take on such a massive project and set us on the right track. So um, the, the article I did with Leander was about two things. One was pointing out that there's a barrier to entry in this position that doesn't have to be there. I mean, the fact that it's a volunteer unpaid position, that's something internally they've tried to change and there's an appetite to change it. Um, it does a couple things. One is it, it creates a, a field of candidates that have to either be independently wealthy or have another job that they're focusing on. And I want to make sure that whoever is U.S. soccer president, that's their focus. Yeah. That's their 24-7 job but also that they're accountable. And, and giving that person a salary means you work for us. Yeah. We, we know what we're paying you, and that's, that's important to, um, to, to be beholden to a fan base that spends a lot of money filling that account, by the way. That $150 surplus is a lot of fans that are traveling around and supporting this team. So those fans want to pay a president so that they feel they have equity in this process. And it's bizarre if you think about the fact that it's not in many ways, right? This is the United States of America we're talking about, the head of soccer in the richest economy in the world, or the massive fan base that's only growing year after year. I mean, that seems like a full-time job. Right? It absolutely is a full-time job. And, um, you know, here's the thing. If Sunil gets into the race and continues, he should be paid. It's not about who needs a salary. It's just about what that job is. And the precedent, and you understand why people look at this and think that's why you make this decision, is other associations where the paid president of a nonprofit uh, doesn't happen. I mean, all of the presidents of, of a lot of the associations linked with Olympics don't have paid presidents. But they're just so different yeah. from U.S. soccer. I mean, the biggest sports market in the country and the greatest sport on the planet, you have an enormous job here in our country in a crowded sports landscape to grow this game. Mm. And that, that is a 24-7 gig, and you have to give everything to that. And so I wanted to highlight that in the article because Julie said this publicly and others have told me privately they can't afford to do this job. Yeah. Next, um, I wanted to accomplish something, I guess ostensibly, I wanted to take the distraction away about the speculation that I could run. Yeah. And a lot of people were calling me. There were back channel conversations from people I respect in the soccer community saying, Kyle, you have to do this. And, and I wanted to channel the focus towards someone else. And I wanted to do the article so that all of that great work behind the scenes could be, could be mobilized and pointed to another candidate that could step into this thing. And why I say ostensibly, that didn't happen. Right after I did that piece with Leander, my phone rang 10 times more than it did before with the people that had been calling me and others saying, Kyle, we need you to do this. We need someone like you to step forward. So um, that, that, was, that was the point where I went to my family at home and my NBC family and said, this is, this is something I have to do. And we'll get into the problems facing U, uh, U.S. soccer as you see them. But I'm also, it, it's fascinating because this isn't, 
this isn't particular to the United States. I mean, being from England, I've seen this in the FA long ago, where some of the problems facing them simply need a soccer mind to solve them, right? And it's, it's, it strikes me as slightly strange that you're almost like an outsider in this race when you have a this sort of glittering US-based soccer career, right? It's, 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 it's just bizarre to think that, you know, the people running the show in many ways aren't the same people who took the field in their youth. Well, and listen, you don't have to have played the game at, at any high level to understand it and be a quote-unquote soccer person. But I see what you're saying. If you look around the major federations around the world, a lot of them aren't former players, mm -hmm. the presidents of those companies. But the, the reason why the president of other federations isn't a former player in these countries is because soccer is the number one sport, which means the business guy is the soccer guy. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the unique challenge we have in this country is the fact that our business guys are typically not our soccer guys. And that's growing. There are people getting into executive positions who grew up with this game. But we've had business guys running this company for a while that are not qualified to make technical soccer decisions and have been making those. Yeah. So my whole platform is about three pillars. It's about transparency, it's about equality, and it's about progress. So the transparency side of things, we've talked about with make it a paid position. Let's, let's know who this president is and the fact that we're paying their salary and they're not trying to profit off the office in any other ways and they're also not spending their time making a living doing anything else. Yeah. This is their profession. Um, but also, we need to have an outside independent audit of what's happening. Yeah. It's a very opaque system. We need to understand why it's being run the way it's being run and you know what, maybe it's being run the right way. But even the perception of conflict of interest is, is damaging to the brand of U.S. soccer because we have to answer those questions by having more transparency. On the equality front, we, have, we do have world-class players and we have produced World Cup winners. And they're women. And the fact that they're not being talked about and we're making this a U.S. men's national team problem is really upsetting me because, first off, it's not a top of the pyramid problem. This isn't a U.S. women's national team problem as well. This goes all the way down to the grassroots. We are not making this game inclusive enough. It is too expensive for many to get into the game. It's too expensive for many to stay in the game. And for those willing to pay that high premium to get a soccer education, the education's not good enough. So, so we have to start and focus there. But that doesn't mean we can't walk and chew gum at the same time. Let's talk about the fact that the women aren't paid the same as the men, but wear the badge and, and perform in World Cups, by the way, better than our men do. And the fact that we use their success to paper over cracks, I think is, is really disingenuous and I think disrespectful to a women's team who, if you talk to current and former players, they're really upset because on the women's side, they are the Spain, they are the Argentina, they are the, the Germany, they are the Brazil. But all of the other countries getting into the game, focusing on the game, spending on youth, are catching our, our women's national team, and, and some of them surpassing our women's national team. And we had a good head start because of Title IX and other great mechanisms to focus on uh, um, women's sports in this country. We need to pay them the same we pay the men. They need to have the same facilities. They need, they need to have the same travel. They need to have the same respect. And let's treat them like World Cup winners and the world-class athletes they are. But also, our, our, our game is a, a rich kid's game. And, and that's not, and it, it's not representative of what our country is. We are a beautiful, colorful, multicultural country. 
Yet our national teams tend to not represent that because it becomes a very difficult game to get involved in, especially where we're sitting right now in New York City. 50% of kids are more likely to play basketball than soccer. Now, some of those are cultural issues that are going to be difficult to change because soccer is playing catch up in a crowded sports market. But a lot of those things that we can address, access to facilities, good coaching, we, was subsidizing the youth game with some of our surplus. We, we can address a lot of these problems. And that kind of leads me to the progress side of things, the last pillar of my platform. We're going backwards. The high water mark for the men's national team, the women's national team, the youth, the Olympics, it's all before Sunil Glady's tenure. I mean, it was 2002, that amazing run where Torsten Frings robbed us and he's admitted it, thank you Torsten, <laughs> from, from going into a semifinal, which would, would have been remarkable. A great achievement for a soccer nation that was growing at that time and building off the momentum of a 1994 World Cup that we hosted. The Olympics, we got a bronze medal, that was before Sunil. It was the under 17, Landon Donovan, Demarcus Beasley, when they got golden and silver boots, respectively. Um, it was the women, remember Brandy Chastain, that incredible <laughs> image that we'll never forget of that, that penalty, I think it was at the Rose Bowl. Mm-hmm. I mean, those were our high water marks. And we, we've grown the interest, we have more players involved, we are sending a lot of players abroad more than we used to. It, it is growing in certain ways, but, but on the field, our players are not more prepared now based on the resources, based on the success that we've had in growing the game of soccer, our players are not any more prepared for the challenge of the world stage than they were back in 2002. And that's a real problem. Absolutely. That's a pipeline problem. That's not a head coach of the national team problem. If we're talking about bad bounces or bad coaches or bad lineups, we're missing the whole picture. And in the aftermath of Trinidad and Tobago, I heard Sunil Gulati and others referencing these things you know saying we just missed out on a world cup that happens and we'll be back in there we've just made a few mistakes no we've made massive systemic mistakes and and we can take a really bad moment the worst moment in our soccer history and use it And, and it could be the best moment we've ever had it could be the most pivotal time in our soccer history if we make the right change right now at this inflection point but if we don't and we focus on getting the men back in a world cup that's going to that's gonna be possible, but that's a low bar, and that doesn't solve the soccer problem in this country. Support for the For The Win podcast comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. They understand that your home plays a big role in your life and family. That's why they created Rocket Mortgage. Rocket Mortgage gives you the confidence you need when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. It's simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. Whether you're looking to buy your first home or your 10th, with Rocket Mortgage, you get a transparent online process that gives you the confidence to make an informed decision. It's convenient. Our trusted partners allow you to share your financial information with Rocket Mortgage at the touch of a button. In addition to getting a real mortgage approval in minutes, you can even adjust the rate and length of your loan in real time to make sure you're getting the right solution for you. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Apply simply, understand fully, mortgage confidently. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com forward slash FTW, equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, NMLS, consumeraccess.org, number 3030. Yeah, and, and you mentioned so many fascinating things there. One of them that I think is especially potent is the idea 
um, of or the issue rather of coaches in America. Um, you know, it's, it strikes me as a relative outsider to this that one of the problems is that you know a, a kid who has potential, who loves soccer, who looks like he could be something one day perhaps, um, is is forced to decide or is is forced into this expensive system mm-hmm. in order to get the best coaches because there aren't any sort there aren't as many coaches who could help him fulfill his potential outside of that system it seems to me there's this inherent tension there between uh, this kid being able to fill, fulfill his potential and having the economic means to fulfill his potential you sort of said soccer in this country is a rich man's game where do where does the issue I guess my question is of being able to get more good coaches into the system um, and to open up, to broaden out that sort of base of play. Yeah. How big an issue is, is, is that in your mind? It's a really good question because I just got finished saying um, it's a rich kid's game and it's hard to get in as a player. Mm. And listen, if my parents gave me the bill for my soccer education, I wouldn't be able to afford it now. And, and I've been a part of every level of soccer. I played rec, travel, I played premier, you know, the, the, the elite sort of development academy club style. I went down to Bulletary for the residency program. I played high school, I played college, I played pro, I played the national team. And now I'm on the, the, the other side of that where I'm paying for the first time <laughs> in my soccer life to play soccer and I'm loving it. I pay to go play in a men's league and then I also pay for my daughter to be a part of it. And it's broken in many ways, but you brought up a really important point. My kids are lucky they have a soccer dad, and they're going to get a soccer education at home if they want it. Mm. Um, But there are two problems. One, not being able to afford to get into this elite group. The other problem is a lot of parents like mine are more than happy paying the high premium to get into that group, but the soccer education isn't worth what we're paying. It's not good enough. Now, there are some academies doing a great job training great kids. I mean, Christian Pulisic is this wonderful example of being able to be a, a, a top talent in the world coming out of the system. But Christian had two soccer parents. Yeah. I mean, those he had two soccer-playing parents. Claudia Urena, who's a good friend of mine, his son Gio, a remarkable talent. His wife Danielle was an incredible player. I mean, to have those parents, and I've been to their house. They have three goals in their backyard, <laughs> and, and soccer's on all day long. But coaching is expensive, too, to get licensed. It is an incredibly expensive process, but also a lot of the, the, the training for coaches is not good enough. They're not being prepared for the challenge of molding kids and helping them grow and become great soccer players. Take Spain, for instance. Spain, it won't surprise you, has the highest percentage of UEFA-licensed coaches because it is incredibly affordable to do so, and every dad thinks he's a soccer coach in that country, and a lot of them get involved. So they're a soccer coach. I mean, you throw a rock, you're going to hit a soccer coach, a great soccer coach in Spain. We have a problem here. And England, by the way, has a problem too with how expensive and difficult it is to become licensed as a coach. So we need to make it more affordable to go through those programs, but we also have to make the training programs for coaches better. We can do that with U.S. soccer because I see the $150 million surplus not as something to brag about, but as an opportunity cost. Yeah. I, I see $150 million. You know what I see? I see coaching salaries. I see training referees and making sure that we can get more referees in the system and making sure that they're ready for the, the, the top level. Because by the way, we're missing out on the World Cup men's soccer, but there's, we're gonna have a referee there. <laughs> I mean, we're gonna be in that tournament represented. 
by, by great referees, but we need more of them. But the coaching is absolutely where we need to start because it doesn't matter if we cast a wide net and catch kids that we're not catching. If we're not training them the right way, then we haven't really moved the needle much. Yeah, yeah. And, and another thing, too, that I, I, I was, you know, I'm interested to pick your mind about, Christian Pulisic in uh, the Players' Tribune yesterday mm-hmm. wrote an interesting piece where he, there was a section where he sort of implied that going abroad right now for the 17-year-old soccer player, U.S. soccer player might be the best option for them. Um, it, I can't imagine, you know, in your position, for example, that, that's a bit of an awkward problem to, to, to face, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you're looking at a 16-year-old kid and you want him to stay in the system. Obviously, you want him to bolster the MLS program, but is it in his best interest to be going to England and signing with an academy of that? I mean, how do you resolve that problem in the short term? That's we know, a really we know it's broken in the long term. Yeah, in the short term. it's a really good question. Um, I mean, here, here, I, I was really impressed with Christian coming out and saying some honest things that are difficult to say and some things that might get him criticized. But I, I think we should look at that and say, you know, good for him for creating a, a high-level conversation. We can have discourse here about that. And, and my opinion is, it, it, it's not. There's no panacea. We, you know, we can't solve the youth problem by doing what Germany did, which is they had the failure uh, in the Euros, and all of a sudden they come up with a 10-year plan and start throwing billions of dollars at it and have center of excellences all over the country, 390 of them, and and 1,200 scouts, and start getting coaches and programs together. I mean, it was remarkable how quickly they got the DFB, their their FA for those that, that aren't familiar with that term. And, and the Bundesliga to to finally work in a in a in a symbiotic way to solve their youth soccer problem. And by the way, that's a, a World Cup winning serial t- Final Four team that thought they had a youth soccer problem. I mean, how, how how naive are we to think we've got it all right and Germany had to change things around? And they created a roadmap to getting to a World Cup. Not to win it, they'd already done that, but doing it with risk, which is very unusual for their culture. They are risk averse uh, by nature, but also in their soccer community. But we can't throw $2 billion at this problem. What we need to do is figure out how do we, at every single level, from the kid that just wants to play rec and enjoy himself, and, 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 and the little girl that wants to just have orange slices and have fun with her friends, to the kids that want to, that aspire to be at a more professional level. And some kids have to go abroad to get that. And Christian's not the first, he won't be the last. But for some kids, that's not the right answer. So it's good that you have that option for young players to go and train over there. But I'll tell you, for every Clint Dempsey that went to Fulham and performed well and that launched a great professional career, there's an Eddie Lewis, or sorry, not Eddie Lewis, Eddie Johnson, who also went to Fulham and almost ended his soccer career. So. You know, you guys have a problem over there in England with your youth being in the quote-unquote the best league and in the best academies across the world. Ask these Chelsea players if being a part of Chelsea is helping them grow as a player. No, they're being farmed out to Vitesse, and they're going to other countries to get their soccer education. So it's okay for us to do that at a certain point. But 16, yeah, that's what Christian said, right? That 16-year-olds might have to go over to academies. We need to do some, I mean, 16's too late. Yeah. I mean, yes, that's, that's a really crucial time where you're making the transition into, you're ready to be in the first team very soon. But your soccer education starts way, way before that. And you know, parents aren't gonna take their nine-year-olds and send them to, to Germany to get a soccer education. We have to train them here 
we have to create a afford, an affordable way for the kids who are elite to find great coaching and have enough scouts to discover kids that aren't on these fields in these tournaments where supposedly you have to go to get identified. And so I, I agree with some of the things Christian said, but I, I say that we have a responsibility with U.S. soccer to train kids well before that point so that when they get to 16, jumping to the Bundesliga, if that's where they want to go, or Ajax, a great academy there, or La Masia, if we can get some, some kids into that great program, that won't be such a massive leap for them because they got a great soccer education here, and, and the disparity between the education they can get abroad, we shrink that, so it, it is more attractive to stay here and want to be a part of academies here. So, you know, the, the Bundesliga and the second division, going back to that Germany example, there was a mandate that they all had to have academies. We, yeah. we can do that with our professional leagues here, and Major League Soccer is spending a lot of money and in investing in building academies, and many are doing it well and putting a lot of money forward. But, but it's not a universal thing. Everyone's not doing it. Everyone's not tackling it. And until U.S. soccer gets behind that problem, it's going to be difficult to make that a, a, um, a standardized countrywide priority. Yeah, and I must say, it's interesting what you say there too, because when you look at where Christian Pulisic is, the point of view in which he's writing from, He's writing from the point of view of a prodigy who went through the system and it worked for him, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I was a, I, I was a big golfer. Went on to play college golf in, um, you know, when I was younger, obviously. And if if I had said, "Mom, you know, I need to go to, I need to go to Germany at the age of twelve years old to try to," fulfill, should, there, there would be one answer to that question. Be like, "No, you're not. You're, <laughs> not, you're not going to." So, so yeah, I do think that um, the, the problems here are. Close to but here's what Christian said that I really like. Um, if you read his, his story and, and really try to figure out how does a kid from Pennsylvania become this this phenom, and he wants to push back against phenom, prodigy, and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But but I'm sorry, Christian, you are you are an excellent player, and I've played with Landon Donovan, I've played with Claudio Reyna, and they all admit at their age they weren't as good as he is now. Yeah, he's the um, real deal. But, but part of his soccer education that was the most helpful, and, and I can say this from experience, was the non-structured, non-coach sessions. And, and you won't hear other candidates maybe talking about this, but the amateur game. I said, now I'm, I'm paying, and I was playing in the, the New York uh, Metro Soccer League here. I played for NIAC after I was done, and now I'm playing in Stratford. Um, one of the greatest things about my soccer education growing up was I had a good mentor in Mickey Kites who runs a great program called Beachside in Connecticut. But when I didn't feel fulfilled or that wasn't giving me everything, I paid $5 on a Tuesday night to play indoor with the Hispanic adults, and I, played, I paid $5 on Saturday nights to play indoor in, in Old Greenwich with the Jamaicans. That was a integral part of the player I became, the creativity I had about my game, and Christian Pulisic is the same way. And if you listen to his father, he said he made it he made it a priority that there were that time was allotted for Christian to be a part of the pickup game. And and, and we don't have enough of that in our culture. I mean mm. the greatest players on the planet, go go down the Ballon d'Or list, these are guys from Favelas in Brazil, yeah. from from some of the lowest income parts of the world. And they learned when there was no coach around, maybe not even cleats, maybe a, a ball that they had to make, that, that that is a invaluable part of the process. So U.S. soccer needs to pay attention to the amateur side of the game because, believe it or not, it's actually training some of your youth. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, um, Kyle, we're running out of time here, but I am curious. If you could 
wave a magic wand tomorrow. Do you have one? I, uh, I need one. <laughs> I, don't, I don't, unfortunately. But if I did, yeah. um, and you could wave it. It's a big question to say, you know, what does, what does the U.S. soccer system mm-hmm. look like? But what are the outlines of it? You know, like, are we looking, can the U.S. replicate a Germany model? Can it replicate a, you know, I- I- is there a point in the future where every MLS team has an academy in which that's where, you know, the, the promising 10-year-old mm-hmm. soccer lover g- goes? I yeah. mean, what, what, do, what do the outlines of the structure look like? Yeah, and, and that's, I'm glad you asked that because I'm hearing um, a lot of kind of bumper sticker slogan uh, or, or tweets in 140 characters trying to solve the soccer problem. And what we need right now is the answer to your question. And I'm, I'm going to find that answer by having a summit here in New York City December 4th to the 6th, where I've invited some of the greatest soccer minds from the top of the pyramid all the way down to the grassroots to put on paper our business plan. I'm calling it a progress plan. And that's why I have a GoFundMe started to let the fans have a vested interest in this plan and and contribute to building it. And and it's going to answer these questions. And I don't want to be coy. I want to make sure that part of me running is is to show the community but the delegates who are going to vote February 10th, I don't have all the answers. And we've come out of an era where someone tried to be the expert in all categories. I will be the person that has the wisdom to find the answers, to find the people that can answer these questions, the courage to tackle those problems, but the humility to admit, I don't have all of the answers. So that room is gonna help me solve these problems. But let me just give you the 30,000 foot picture of what I want to do. Can we do what Germany did? No, we can't. Can we do what Spain's doing? No, we can't. Can we do what Brazil does? No, we can't. Can we do what Argentina does? No, we can't. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't take pieces of all of their strategies. And I'll go back to Claudio Reyna. He, uh, a few years back, came up with a curriculum. And it was the confluence of flying around the country, meeting with, and calling it a lot of favors because he has an incredible network, and meeting with... Uh, directors of La Masia, the Ajax Academy, Feyenoord, um, PSV, and in Germany, and, and, and gathering a consensus of what worked here, what worked there, what could we take back to the States as a curriculum? Not telling you, hey, play a back three, get your fullbacks forward, you know, play two holders, play a false nine. Just saying to coaches, this is how it's being done around the world. This is a great template, a, a blueprint on how we can improve youth development here. You know where it is? That, that, that curriculum is sitting maybe at the soccer house in a top drawer gathering dust. And that's one of the reasons you saw recently Claudio Reyna in his um, interview, first interview after Trinidad and Tobago, give some harsh, harsh truths saying, we're too cocky. We think we have all of the answers. And, and, and I don't think he was alluding specifically to that, but basically he's saying we need to listen more. And that's one of the reasons that I've enlisted the help of David Beckham and Thierry Henry. They've played in this league. They believe in this country and what we can build soccer-wise. That's why they passed up great opportunities with huge European clubs to finish their careers here. Um, They can help us solve these problems. And we have great minds within U.S. soccer already that can solve problems if we just unlock them, empower them to be able to finally make technical soccer decisions in a democratic way. So that's who I'm going to be as president. I'm going to be the person that creates a consortium of great soccer minds. Kind of like Lester, the greatest sports story of all time, in my opinion, 5,000 to 1. That story never happens if fans and business people 
get don't get together and say we're going to save this club. We're not going to let it go into administration, but now it's ours. We own it and we're going to make sure that we protect what's beautiful about this club. We need to do that for US soccer right now, and I'm the guy that can do that. Absolutely. I mean, you know, fascinating stuff and much food food for thought. Uh, once again, it's Kyle Martino, running for president of the US Soccer Federation. Kyle, thanks for, so much for taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me.